From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me today are Alicia Eastman, President of Intercontinental Energy, and Patrick Malloy, Manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI. On today's episode, Patrick and Alicia spoke with Rafi Garabedian, CEO and co-founder of Electric Hydrogen. Electric Hydrogen was founded by a team of energy transition veterans from First Solar and Tesla. The company is focused on developing electrolytic hydrogen production solutions at a scale suitable for heavy industrial applications. Prior to the founding of Electric Hydrogen, Rafi was most recently with First Solar, where he served as CTO from 2012 to 2020. Before joining First Solar in 2008, he was founder and CEO of Touchdown Technologies. Rafi joined us to tell us more about how Electric Hydrogen is working to decarbonize heavy industry using clean hydrogen. But before we get into it, we'd just like to ask that if you enjoy the show and follow us here at EAH... Please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Plus, we love hearing from our listeners. All right, let's get this episode started. So, Alicia, how's it going? What's, it's been a big week, right? Yeah, it is actually. Uh, a little bit out of the blue, um, we got the uh, EU Delegated Act announced, uh, we had decisions made, um, and we're thinking about the implications now, but uh, it's, it's pretty great to uh, actually have some things written down, and I think this is going to make investors a lot happier to have this type of security, this certainty um, always makes investors happy. I'll what do you think? Hold the presses. The European Union has taken initiative and made a decision on 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 kind of where our hydrogen trajectory is going. No, I, I I joke. It's 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 number one really important, as you say, for the investor community to get that level of kind of um, clarity, I suppose. But also, I think the fact that it is you know quite quite far sighted as well in terms of where the regulatory regulatory and kind of um, kind of production standards are kind of going as well as helpful too for for producers to really understand what kind of a market they're going to be operating in post 2028 so yeah really really going to be uh going to be a game game changer but also for all those folks who want to export or or import into europe the uh the now standards are starting to clarify and one question i have is whether we're going to have a global standard around uh around these these attributes going to start to emerge now or whether uh, whether we're going to go the, the way that we've gone previously with 10 different standards but that is a problem for a different day so from yes. your from your perspective in your chair what what do you think of it all like where do, where does it uh, where, what does it mean maybe well I mean I think everyone has their issues with it uh, some people think that it's a little bit too restrictive. Uh, with the additionality and uh, a number of these different um, things in terms of like, uh, you know, when you take from the grid, you can balance it out over a month, I think, until 2028 or 2030. And then it has to be accounted for on an hourly basis. And it just some things seem like they're heading towards overly bureaucratic and, and can be restrictive. But at the same time, I mean, I understand the desire to use new renewables that you're building in order to green the grid if the grid is going to be used. Um, And, you know, we always have thought that you should make this in the cheapest place possible, not somewhere where 
it's very, very crowded <laughs> and very difficult to build um, renewables. So it makes sense. I mean, I don't think anything really is crazy. Uh, and it's a little bit of a compromise between two sides, like uh, uh, sort of the very far left green green side and then, you know, sort of the more traditional um, conservatively fossil fuel oriented side. But I think it's it's somewhere in between but what both wanted. And I don't think there's any real standout terrible things. I, I, I think it's just it's it's good. It's good to make a decision. It's good to put a, a stick in the ground. It's it's good. To, it really helps people to plan. Yeah, for sure. I think I think it's a you know it's one of those definitional uh, well well positioned negotiations or strategies you know where nobody's happy at the end, which means that the uh, the the piece worked right. Successful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is it. Um, so, who do we have on uh, today? Ah, well, now we've got a we've got a very interesting one because we have uh, Rafi uh, Garbedian from Electric Hydrogen joining us. Rafi's the, the CEO of Electric Hydrogen, formerly uh, a CTO with First Solar, and um, he's going to talk to us about what Electric Hydrogen is doing in their uh, production space uh, for the next generation of electrolysis. So it's going to be an interesting one. Rafi, great, great to have you on. Um, I suppose just to kick us off, how did how did the idea for electric hydrogen come into being, and, and can you tell us a little bit about the company and and maybe kind of where you're going a little bit as well? Yeah, happy to do that, and uh, great to be here. So, um, for those of your listeners who don't know my background, I was uh, with First Solar for about 13 years prior to starting Electric Hydrogen. Um, eight years, a little over eight years, I was chief technology officer there. In the journey of solar, uh, it it became clearer and clearer to to me um, that the challenges of integrating variable renewables into the electric system are extremely hard to solve past a certain level of, of penetration. That despite the fact that the marginal cost of production of wind and solar are incredibly low. So a bit of a head scratcher, right? We have this amazing resource that we can only do so much with. And, you know, battery storage, look, lots of really smart people are working on cheaper and cheaper batteries, but it's very hard, right? So, you know, we we at First Solar, of course, had our own projections of, of battery storage costs and the implications on grid integration of renewables. But, man, the, the decarbonization potential of this incredibly cheap energy resource it really should be far greater than simply decarbonizing the electric system. So really that's the that's the the motivation from my point of view and from my co-founder's point of view for starting electric hydrogen. Now, you know, quick quick inception story. So my uh, one of my co-founders David Eaglesham who was the chief technology officer at First Solar before me. So electric hydrogen is uh, is run by two first solar chief technology officers, arguably at least one too many. Uh, Dave was at Breakthrough Energy Ventures as an entrepreneur in residence studying hydrogen as a deep deep decarbonization technology. So the same idea, the same frustration, what can and should we be doing with this really inexpensive but variable generating technology to decarbonize the world at large, decoupled from the electric system? Through that investigation, Dave 
came up with some hypotheses about electrolysis and how to reduce the cost of electrolysis dramatically relative to the state of the art without taking undue technology risk. So not based on some unproven science in, in you know, deep, deep science in the lab, but really based on an understanding of device physics and how it can be improved. That was all hypothetical. Uh, Dave and I uh, joined forces in 20, late 2020 and uh, decided to spin his ideas out of Breakthrough Energy Ventures uh, into a new company. And that's, that's how we got started at Electric Hydrogen. Fantastic. Can you tell us a little bit about like what, what differentiates your technology between you and the other electrolysis systems? Yeah, let, let's, start with, um, let's start with the goal, and then hopefully that <laughs> will make the differentiation a little clearer. So uh, in, for the, again, for those of you who, who know about this company, First Solar, where both of us used to work, the company is known not just for making solar modules and being competitive against kind of the Asian solar market or, or supply base, but um, it's notable in the sense that it has focused almost exclusively on large utility scale applications, grid connected applications of solar. Because of that business model focus, we who worked at First Solar and, and helped, to, helped to run and grow it have a deep appreciation for project finance and an understanding of how project economics works in commodity businesses, you know, thinking about utility scale generation of electricity, that's the ultimate commodity, if you will. We started electric hydrogen with the hypothesis that for, in order to be successful in deep decarbonization, hydrogen has to be viewed as a commodity, not as a specialty gas, right? But something that is extremely price sensitive. So coming at it from that perspective and having some at least cursory understanding of project finance and, and how, how that works, we focused our attention on the parameters that drive levelized cost of hydrogen. And simply put, it, it's twofold, right? It's You have to be able to harness extremely low-cost energy. Each, you know, each $10 a megawatt hour of energy cost equates to roughly 65 cents or so of hydrogen production cost per kilogram. Uh, so, you know, you can appreciate right from there that you've got to access cheap electricity, to make cheap hydrogen. That's one component. The other component is that, uh, of course, there's a capex, right? The, the, uh, the effect of capital cost on the levelized cost of hydrogen is, uh, is very strong. And so particularly if you're focused on extremely cheap energy, which tends to be low capacity factor, right? So low capacity factor means your capital plant is going to operate less of the time and it makes it even more sensitive, it makes the LCOH even more sensitive to the capex. So the goal was to reduce levelized cost of hydrogen. You know, the bogey for us is kind of below $1.50 a kilogram. We believe that that's a threshold at which the market should, hockey stick, should grow extremely quickly because we're getting to the point of parity with gray hydrogen and certainly below parity with blue hydrogen in the cheapest places in the world to make hydrogen. So, so that's our, that's our target. Um, the energy resource exists, the, um, but it's low capacity factor. So what do we do about the capital plant? And that takes us to our technology choice. So we, we focused early on proton exchange membrane technology for a couple of reasons. Um, the obvious one that probably most of your listeners know and think about is the flexibility of the technology, its ability to follow variable renewables. That's great. 
that's pretty well established, uh, at least at the stack level. Um, we can talk about plant level flexibility if we want to get really wonky, but the capital cost is not very good, right? So how do, how do we improve that? And we, we, you know, we, we studied proton exchange membrane devices. And again, my, my partner Dave had some hypotheses about how to drive costs down dramatically, not by reducing material costs so much, you know, using cheaper materials, replacing titanium with stainless steel, et cetera, et cetera, but actually a much more powerful lever, lever on cost, which is the productivity of the unit. So if you think about an electrolyzer, the big ones are the size of a small refrigerator, right? Big PEM devices are about the size of a small fridge. Um, they tend to be around, roughly speaking, a megawatt in input capacity. If we can double, triple the throughput of that device, multifold increases in the throughput of that device, we can reduce the cost proportionately because we measure cost in dollars per watt terms. Right. That's that's what that's what you enter into the project finance model. And it turns out that there are fundamental technology parameters, particularly in PAM electrolysis, that provide that opportunity for multifold improvements in the throughput of a PAM device. That's what we've reduced to practice at electric hydrogen and what we're commercializing as we speak. So, so maybe just to, to quickly follow on, because as you say, you know, some of the, the, the larger stacks that you typically see or hear about, you know, it's a one megawatt, maybe maybe some two megawatt styles systems or, or stacks that, that particularly PEM is kind of known for. You know, there are historically some challenges with keeping kind of the, I'm, gonna, I'm interested to your take on exactly how you do this and, and where this kind of efficiency gain lives, but keeping the activated area kind of actually proportionally the same in these larger units, some challenges perhaps around the efficiency factors and, and kind of some of the bubble formation factors. And we're, for anybody listening in, we are way, way down in the, in the rabbit hole right now. But, but Rafi, just interested to how you guys engage with some of these, what might be considered the fundamental challenges in, in, in the PEM systems as they commercialized. Yeah, there, there, there are a myriad fundamental challenges. I'll, I'll start by saying our devices are about the same size as large commercial PEM devices. So we're not attempting to change the footprint, the physical size of the device, because it's um, constrained by available material dimensions and fabrication techniques in the factory. So, you know, we, we come from a high volume manufacturing background. We kind of think about the device not in isolation as a you know as an abstract uh, or a laboratory thing but we think about it from the standpoint of high volume manufacturing first and foremost because it's kind of in our DNA um, which again informs the physical footprint of the device now you know you're talking about a number of factors there are in fact um, parameters like uh, bubble formation or you know gas to fluid uh, volume ratios in the flow paths of the device that have to be engineered for extremely high productivity as as we're doing there are myriad other factors as well getting high productivity high throughput from the stack at the expense of efficiency would be a bad answer right that that really doesn't help your project economics per se uh, because you'd just be trading opex for capex so clearly if you imagine what we're doing we're not compromising efficiency in fact we're improving efficiency relative to conventional state-of-the-art PEM, but 
at a much higher throughput. And, you know, exactly how we do that, I'm, I'm not going to divulge because that's actually the, the secret sauce of the company. And we've invested a great deal of money and, and effort into, into, um, those innovations, but it, it works. Uh, what I can tell you is, um, our device performance is validated by independent third parties and we have these things running at full scale. I think I think we look forward to having you back on in the future when you can tell us a little bit more and the the projects are are getting rolled out. But yeah, for sure, it's 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 an interesting and challenging kind of spot. And maybe maybe Alicia, just to kick it over to you on on some of the other other aspects that might come into play. Sure. Um, yeah, well, we look forward to that uh, Easter egg that you dropped and kind <laughs> of having you back on uh, to find out how. But uh, I'm, I'm just curious, um, how does electric hydrogen think about stack integration or stack size? Like, how can this support some of these larger scale projects that are being discussed? You know, some of like my project, <laughs> how could it support a, a, you know, very large scale projects? Yeah, thank you, Alicia. Um I skipped over it when I was uh, trying to explain my view on the goal for the company. Um, <laughs> the third, the third leg of that stool, the third element of our goal is to address large infrastructure applications of hydrogen, and it goes directly to your question. We want to build really big electrolyzers, and and you know I I I don't say that to take away from building small electrolyzers. There are plenty of markets for that. And in fact, they're much easier markets to get into because they're they're real today. But that's not our intention. Our intention is deep decarbonization of recalcitrant indus- industries that are so-called hard to decarbonize. And that requires us to be thinking at the multi-hundred megawatt scale. Now, when we, when we think about that problem, it's uh, extremely challenging to be cost-effective at the multi-hundred megawatt scale if you're trying to build an electrolyzer plant out of one or two megawatt stacks and units. Maybe that's not intuitively obvious as to why there's a cost uh, implication there, but the simplest way for me to describe it is that the amount of piping and the number of components like valves and pumps and things increases proportionately to the number of stacks. And so as we make stacks bigger, bigger and watts in megawatt terms, not physically bigger. As we make them bigger in megawatt terms, but keep them dimensionally small, we have the opportunity to densify, if that's a word, the balance of plant, reducing the number of components, the the amount of piping, moving to much larger dimension components, all the factors you typically see in the chemical industry. Right, so chemical plants tend to tend to scale very favorably with with size. Right, as you uh, as you increase the size, the cost goes down um, more than proportionately. So, uh, so those are the effects we use in our plant design. Now, you know, maybe I'm I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Um, it is worth my maybe explaining that our product at Electric Hydrogen is not a stack. We have designed and are selling a complete system. The scope of that system extends from twenty something kilovolt AC three phase input power all the way through to nominally pressurized hydrogen output that's dry and clean. Of course, we also take in water. Our scope includes uh, a water purification plant that's necessary. Um, and we, and we of course, um, vent uh, brine from that water purification plant. So it really is a complete solution 
for the hydrogen production portion of a project developer or industrial customer's need. Now, why do we do that? There are very important interactions between the balance of plant and the stack technology that need to be co-optimized. But we've also observed that large systems, large system costs are inordinately high today because each of these systems is bespoke engineered, typically by an EPC, for site and project specific conditions and outcomes. And though that makes sense for extremely large gigawatt scale projects and plants, carrying the NRE, the upfront engineering cost of that kind of approach for smaller systems in the multi-hundred megawatt regime uh, actually is a, a significant economic burden. So our approach is to productize the entire balance of plant in a modular skidded, uh, as you can imagine, fashion that is easy and quick to deploy by a less sophisticated EPC. And, and does that come back to the project finance? Um, because the EPC is generally unwilling to take a bet on lowering prices of any goods. So to the extent that you can take things off the shelf or you have um, you know, a known product or technology, uh, the better you're going to get for your P90 or probably P50. Um, but <laughs> is, is that one of the considerations really is, is, is basically to qualify for the project finance um, and working around the way? Yeah, yeah. Um, Alicia, absolutely. Uh, there, there are a number of factors here. Um, as you mentioned, the EPC business model doesn't provide really much of an alignment of incentives to dramatically reduce cost because naturally EPCs aren't in the business of productizing a thing like this. It's project by project by project. Um, we, on the other hand, as an equipment manufacturer, we are incentivized to scale repeat volumes of the same thing and take cost out of it. So very much a manufacturing approach. Now, how that translates, so that that approach, that business model, maybe differentiation, of course, lends itself to reduction in CapEx. But you're asking maybe an even more nuanced question around project finance and financeability, and um, and this becomes an extremely complicated topic. EPCs generally don't want to wrap or warranty or guarantee the performance of something like an electrochemical stack that they've procured from someone else because it's a relatively young technology. It's not very well understood. It's perceived as a high risk for an EPC to take on. And so that presents project finance problems, right? So again, as a as a manufacturer, we're able to stand behind our product as a complete solution. Yeah. It, I, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And I think a lot of people are running into that issue, even with standard electrolyzers, because of course they need to scale. So um, everyone is running into an issue where EPCs are unwilling to take on risk of any kind. And to be fair, they get blamed for everything as well. So, yeah. Well, no, it's, it's um, <laughs> you know, EPC margins are not very high. So, yeah. so it's extremely, uh, not vilifying them at all. Uh, exactly. It's an extremely different, difficult business to take a lot of risk within. So, yeah. so it's, it's, it's natural, right? Um, and, and I would say that the, the costs of one-off project, um, project-based engineering and construction are inherently high. Yes. And, and, and so I it's, think it's that, not that EPCs are gouging you as a customer. It's, it's that the business model is such that it doesn't facilitate um, continuous reduction in cost. 
Exactly. Yeah. Um, but hopefully that's something we can all crack together um, between project finance and the EPCs, um, you know, to get at least some third party information about what costing should look like in the future, not using um, uh, information from 15 years ago that has then yeah. been projected forward. <laughs> some of yeah. those common or mistakes. academic models, which are notoriously Ex- wrong. Exactly. Patrick, I think you had something. I'm, I'm, I'm going to appreciate the, the, that we have gotten right into the uh, the project finance implications, and, and somewhere somewhere in the UK, Chris's ears have, have peaked or spiked up. So I'm sure he's going to enjoy listening to this and have some thoughts too. But I I, I want to kind of bring us back to just some of the kind of the, the fundamental kind of choices just for a minute, which you know, one of the the pieces that is starting to, to be talked about a bit more is around the material kind of substitution potentials and, and kind of scaling this industry. I'm just interested, Rafi, you, you give us a good kind of overview of a different profile, not a stack, you know, an integrated system. But in terms of those material changes or the supply chain constraints around it, you know, are you also kind of seeing similar advantages or opportunities in in that space also? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Though I would say we tend to be less focused on reducing component material cost because we see much more advantage in pushing the other dimension that I've I've talked about, which is the productivity of those material inputs. And and this is just a question of the numbers, okay? So if you can imagine an, an entitlement for a particular material substitution, it, it might be, a let's say, a 30% cost reduction opportunity to replace one material with another. Let's say replace titanium with stainless steel in making flow plates. Um, that's great. It's 30% cost reduction at the stack level. But when we think about the opportunities to re-engineer the device for higher performance, again, we're going after entitlements, technological entitlements of multifold reductions in the cost of the device as measured on the correct dollar per watt basis. So in fact, we are perfectly comfortable spending more money per unit if it delivers more than proportional improvement in performance. And, and in fact, that's what we do. Now, there are other constraints in this industry in the supply chain. I think you're, you're probably touching on maybe the most important one, which would be the, the platinum group metals that are used in PEM electrolysis. And, you know, I want to just admit right up front that the, the PEM industry, the PEM electrolyzer industry, I believe is largely in denial about this this really important issue, particularly about the availability of iridium and the resulting um, poor scalability of the industry as a whole. So the iridium intensity of state-of-the-art PEM devices is quite poor. And, you know, by back-of-the-envelope calculations, the industry could maybe scale to 10 gigawatts a year of production and start to knock up against constraints in global iridium supply. That's not a very scalable industry relative to the problem at hand, the problem we're trying to address. Why does electrolysis green hydrogen even exist? It's to decarbonize big sectors of the economy. And, you know, again, back of the envelope math says we have to see our way clear to hundreds of gigawatts per year of deployment, not not 10 gigawatts of deployment. So, so that's a critical constraint for the industry and one that we have taken uh, taken on head-on um, from the very beginning of the architecture of the device we, we've developed. Uh, so we, we, you know, I'll, I'll 
very openly say to your audience, we use PGMs. We use them in far lower quantity than a state-of-the-art PEM device without compromising durability. And that's that's the magic trick is how, how do you do that? So what, how do you do it? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, 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 Pretty soon some, some patents will be published and, and, (laughs) and the world will be able to, to, to maybe get a glimpse of, of how we do it. But look, I mean, at least I'd I'd love to be able to to be more forthright about it, but. um, You had me on the edge of my seat. It was, it all felt like you were about to tell us. The important thing is we do do it. And, um, you know, with, with customers, we are able to go into under NDA, we're able to go into very deep discussions about um, the, the data, the supporting data to demonstrate the fact that we we've achieved what we say we've achieved. So, you know, if, if you, if you have, uh, if there are customers or people interested in the use of these kinds of devices out in your audience listening, uh, give us a call and, and, um, you know, if warranted, we'll, uh, we'd be happy to take you through the details. Yeah, no, I, I personally think it's exciting to have, um, just a diversification of technologies because that's going to solve a number of the problems of the, uh, components and the, metals and materials. So if there are just many different ways, um, and, and of course, I'm sure you think your way will be the best way, and that could be great, but many ways is, is, is also important. Um, I think uh, I think Patrick has another question, which I'll, I'll let him ask. Uh, Ravi, there's obviously an awful lot of excitement spurred on by both obviously the the announcements coming out of the eu around kind of um some of the the kind of standards around definitions of green hydrogen and also import potential and also obviously with uh, with ira and and the infrastructure bill and whatnot just just interested in on a general take of how these kind of mechanisms, and particularly obviously in the U.S., where where things like the production tax credit, where some of these hubs and hub initiatives and and kind of LPO support for some of the the kind of infrastructure pieces as well, you know, what's that? What's that from your perspective doing to the market, and and how, how what what has that done for you as a as a manufacturer of an electrolyzer technology? Yeah, um, bottom line up front, it's dramatically accelerated the market. If you pressed me for an estimate, I'd say three to five years acceleration in the market in the U.S. We we always felt the U.S. market, based on fundamentals, should be a very strong market ultimately. But the action was in other parts of the world when we started the company, and you know we we were of course very excited about the IRA um, when it passed, surprisingly, and you know the 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 ramifications of of that were immediately clear in terms of customer engagement and you know serious serious project developers and end users getting excited about the possibility in the nearer term now of course there are practical constraints to how quickly projects get developed and built so the ira not notwithstanding in the us um there's still a lead time associated with with uh, adoption uh, but the the PTC makes renewable hydrogen, fossil free hydrogen. People use different words. It makes it instantly economic if done right. So it's very very exciting. I I, I will I will say that um, you know coming from First Solar, First Solar grew up in the German feed in tariff market. Right? That that's that was the market that launched us as a company into volume 
and profitability. And, uh, and it was a very, very important program that, you know, I actually credit for the creation of the modern solar industry as we know it. Now, when it was retracted and, you know, this, this happened around Europe fairly abruptly, it was also a, a near death blow to the industry. Having lived through that personally, um, I, I kind of took a number of lessons out of it. Uh, maybe the, the summary, the, the highest level lesson is subsidies such as the IR, IRA are enabling for the uh, initial scaling of a new technology into energy industries, um, into these kinds of industries. But we need to very quickly see past them and move to a point where unsubsidized economics become compelling. That's luckily what happened in solar and wind. And it's actually part of our mission statement to facilitate that same transition in hydrogen production and green hydrogen production. So I'm, I'm super grateful for what's going on in the policy world, uh, but I'm also a little bit cynical after my last decade and a half of experience in renewables uh, and, and, you know, I'm prepared for the inevitable reduction of subsidies, uh, which could be abrupt, um, and which ultimately I welcome because the the reduction of those subsidies actually marks the viability of the technology in economic terms. Definitely agree with you on that. I mean, I think the um, the, the only reason that that wind and solar have become uh, so uh, prevalent and, have, and the, the industry has worked up as it has is because they lowered the cost uh, without subsidy. I mean, they started off obviously with the subsidy, but you need to get to a point where you're lowering cost and and it's real. It's not c- constantly being propped up. <laughs> However, sure. fossil fuels seem to continue to be propped up, so I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think that's right. I think, um, you know, you look at our most vital economic sectors globally, um, whether it's farming, agriculture, uh, water, energy, there, there's no decoupling. There's no possibility that I've ever seen of decoupling these sectors from policy, government, and subsidy. They're all intrinsically subsidized because they're fundamentally vital to society's existence. And so, yeah, it's it's a bit of an illusion to say subsidy-free um, standalone operation, but maybe what we're really talking about here is extraordinary subsidies that are designed to um, bring a new technology and industry to scale into these extremely competitive commodity markets. Yes, and 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 so that it can be in many different locations and not migrate to one market, um, <laughs> as we saw. That's right. The the, the, the other really th- interesting thing about this is that, in my view, we're in a unique time in history where the competitive benchmark, the thing we're competing against, is actually a moving target. It's an upward curve of of the you know the cost of the thing we're replacing, and that is, in my view, driven by the the really macro secular trend to to be cleaner. So decarbonization is a piece of it, but also air quality, et cetera, et cetera, right? Circularity. These are all factors that are driving up the cost of fossil resource consumption over time, and that is intrinsically making the crossover point, the economic crossover point to renewables easier and easier. So, you know, that that's maybe part policy, part just secular trend. Wait, but it's it's handy because people don't really think about it, but you can predict your renewables very easily whereas uh oil and gas goes up and down with, you know, almost that's... almost like there's a, a 
some kind of wizard somewhere who just decides one day to <laughs> make it high or low. Um, the the so, invisible hand, as they exactly. call it. Well, yeah, well, this hand is a little bit um, uh, capricious, I think. Uh, so uh, it's, uh, I think there's a lot of benefits with the, with the renewables and obviously with, with hydrogen coming from the renewables. Your, your comment there made me think of an important issue, P to X, like power to molecules, right? And generally, P to X in most cases is going through hydrogen uh, as a first step. Of course, there are many examples to the contrary, but let's just take it that way for now. When we look at P to X from a project finance perspective, right now, today, it strikes me that most projects are being financed or being proposed to be financed in very much the same architecture that has been developed for renewables. So this is a, a, a capital stack of equity and debt that typically hinges on the firmness of the offtake, right? So priced firm offtake of the, the product. In renewable space, that's the electricity, the energy. In hydrogen, hydrogen or the downstream product, methanol, ammonia, whatever it might be. Now, when we compare that to the way the chemical industries, the molecule industries actually work today, it's radically different. Right? Yeah. Molecules are not firm fixed contracts. For the no. most part, they're commodities that are traded. <laughs> and so we're trying to shoehorn this new form of making molecules into a project finance methodology or model or philosophy that's distinctly different. And the downstream users of the molecules are not prepared, for the most part, to sign these desirable long-term fixed contracts the way that we saw happen in the renewable energy industry. So it's yeah. a bit of a head scratcher for really for us and our customers, right? How do we how do we navigate that? I think if you look at the LNG market, and of course that was really started by the Japanese, you're seeing something quite similar here. A willingness definitely to have a standard price that they can rely on, that's a huge benefit. And a willingness to do these long-term contracts and to maybe not Neither party's making a lot of money off that first phase, but you know, you're going to be together for a long time and it gets cheaper and, and it becomes a more profitable industry for both sides. I, I sort of tend to think that the industry will head that way um, for large projects, obviously. I mean, you, you don't need offtake for tiny ones. But, um, but yes, it is, it is a different structure and it'll be interesting to see who likes the better structure and who doesn't. <laughs> and I would expect that the traders who make their money off of arbitrage will not like it. <laughs> and, um, many of the buyers will, will actually be quite pleased to have something that they can, uh, rely on that won't go negative one day and then be, you know, a billion dollars the next. So, um, yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah. see. And, you know, you know, in solar project development, we, we saw this dynamic play out where regulated utilities actually really liked the fixed price attribute of solar energy as a hedge against natural gas price, uh, which yeah. fluctuated wildly, right? So, so it's, a, it's a hedging, yeah. if you want to look at it in financial terms, right? It's a hedging strategy. I agree with you in the long term. This makes perfect sense. The challenge is in the launching of large-scale hydrogen green hydrogen production, it presents a, a, a discordance in business model that that is, I think, an, it turning out to be an impediment for early projects. Well, I, it has been a really interesting conversation. I don't think we even intended to go into this direction. Um, but, <laughs> but, but thank you uh, so much for, for coming on. 
and and sharing a, a bit about what your company does. I'm looking for the more detailed information and when you'll be releasing it, um, hopefully <laughs> soon. But uh, you get you have us uh, sufficiently piqued, uh, <laughs> uh, interested in uh, how you're making your electrolyzers, and and uh, I look forward to uh, them being a great success. Well, thank you very much. Uh, it's been a, a great opportunity to to speak to you both today. So, Patrick, what did you think about that? It was a pretty interesting conversation. It's a very interesting conversation. I think, um, I think maybe maybe as a general reflection to start, it's 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 a very interesting company obviously from from what we heard from Rafi but but also I think it's very interesting to see who's involved here we've got uh, a former CTO of, of First Solar a another CTO from First Solar as well so we've got folks who are coming from that technology space in the solar you know PV space um, and moving over to the hydrogen electrolysis business and that interesting transition is is kind of important here right because we're moving from a sector that ramped up and, and advanced its manufacturer or manufacturing profile very very quickly, and you know was very successful at doing that. To now a new space where Rafi has given us a, the same sort of kind of, albeit not the same story, but a similar sort of story around you know moving to next generation profile for electrolysis, improving efficiencies, improving the manufacturing profile, and basically getting us to this multi gigawatt per annum scale style uh, structure, right? And, you know, very clearly is very comfortable talking about, you know, the the weeds and, and getting into the, uh, the the specifics of how you design these systems, which is also great. But I think it's just generally important for, for the space as well to see folks with these sort of uh, kind of skill sets and, and abilities moving in and, and kind of providing that same level of experience and, and kind of urgency towards this transition as well. What about you? Well, I mean, I absolutely agree. I, I think that um, one of the things that's going to shake out the different electrolyzer players is who's capable of scaling. And of course, we've we've always thought that, but I do think it's going to come down to, you know, experience in scaling beforehand, um, just general manufacturing experience, um, automation, a, a lot of things that you can learn from different industries or, you know, even better if it's something as similar as solar which I think, you know, we're, we're clearly expecting to follow sort of the same pathway. And his discussion about having that manufacturing mindset that sort of what can we get off the shelf? What can we get? What can we make in a modular way? I think that's really important. And it's, I think it shows us that he's likely to be able to scale um, better than, than most. He's, he's not going to be running into problems for the first time. Um, and he's he's going to have a pretty good uh, uh, plan for how to deal with uh, scale up issues. So, I mean, I think it's it, it bodes well for the company. Maybe here's a here's a, a I don't know. It's it's not a curveball, but it's maybe one that that it's interesting mm-hmm. to get your perspective on it. And you know, from you know that developer standpoint, from that that you know putting steel in the ground. You know, you you and he spoke about some very particular issues about you know putting the, some of these pieces together i suppose in the first instance how reassuring is that for you as a developer that you've got oems who are thinking about this and number two you know what in that aspect might you know might be the standout piece for you or what what was the 
the thing that caught your eye? Well, I think I'm hearing from a lot of people sort of the same concerns about just building a new market and doing a lot of project finance, because these are sort of on alternate ends of the spectrum. You know, project finance is uh, 70, 80 percent debt. Debt always looks backwards. Um, And, you know, we're used to 30 years of investing in high tech, low assets, you know, types of companies, um, which is very forward looking and is not focused on. I mean, they actually are interested in technology risk because they're interested in the return. And then project finance is very disinterested in technology risk. <laughs> project finance does not like uh, technology risk uh, um, and, and any risk at all. So I think that that's something that the industry is sort of running up against. But the good news is that because this is all for decarbonization and because all of the different players who are financing project finance have these objectives to provide green financing and that, you know, not all of them are because of the organizations, but they're from top down from the governments, uh, you know, under which they where the sovereign wealth funds or the pension funds or, or whatever exists. So they have a lot of motivation to have a little bit more imagination for the future because, you know, they really do. We need a solution and and the solution is going to be something different than what we were used to. It, it's it just has to be. So I I think that there's a little bit more leeway on that side. So that's helpful. But um, one of the things I think would be really useful for the industry is if there could be a little bit more consensus and and from bodies that people trust, like maybe EIA or IRENA or or anybody, um, to put out uh, figures that you know, our projections for what things are expected to cost, um, you know, 10 years from now. And, and, and even if it's EIA, which has been wrong, you know, by a lot in the back, you know, in, in the past, they still, even if we used that level of conservative, being that conservative, it still would be way better than what sort of an EPC is willing to say. Because, uh, Unfortunately for the engineers, they typically get blamed for everything. Um, so they tend to, you know, they tend to pad a lot of their assumptions because they, d- they don't want to get blamed for, you know, over costs, et cetera. And that's obviously not really helpful for project finance. So I think it would be really useful if there was um, a little bit more industry support for figures about costings that we could kind of agree on. And that would be, um, that, I think that would be helpful across the board instead of everyone having to hire a consulting company to do some kind of projection. And I think it would have a little bit more weight to it because it would be somebody putting it out to the entire world as opposed to being paid to produce something for a client, which obviously would like to picture the client favorably. Yeah, I think I think I think there's a there's probably a bit, four or five things there amongst all of it, but you know, one of the pieces that I think stands out to me consistently is that we are still talking about a rather nascent sector in a lot of ways, right? It, it's the weirdness of the space in that you have huge huge maturity in some aspects and absolutely zero in 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 others and stacking those kind of two different um profiles together in and of itself is challenging and and to your point nobody wants to get it wrong and uh, it's it's um in those kind of 
risk moments, whether they are as you as you flag, you know, whether it's in the estimations and the projections of project performance, or whether it's in, you know, uh, how how that you know kind of um, maturity is reflected in the cost of financing. There's a lot of pieces here that need to get put together, and and perhaps that is a uh, that is our next uh, next challenge here. One one little question for you, uh, following on from that, you know, Rafi left us with a lot of Easter eggs, a lot of little <laughs> pieces where there's more to come, and and we you know joked I think a couple of times during the actual interview itself that that you know we'll we'll uh, have to have him back, but. Just wondering on on any uh, any pieces that seemed exciting or stand out when you were asking those questions or listening on for the response. I think I was just very empathetic because, as you know, we we dropped Easter eggs when we first did an interview with you guys a couple of years ago. Now um, we're just aging really quickly. It is it's tough, you know, when everything about your company is you know you just want to shout to the rooftops about what you have going on. And, and you really can't. I mean, you, you have to keep things quiet. Otherwise, people will uh, try to copy you or even worse, um, you know, if you've got some IP and we have IP as well, we, we are protecting it not because we want to be able to license it to somebody later. We're protecting it so that somebody doesn't copy us and then try to license it back to ourselves. And I, I think it's a little bit sad that there are this sort of patent troll entities out there who are looking for basically innovation to then commercialize, but, you know, really just at the, which, which harms the actual entrepreneurs and the inventors and the people who are, are coming up with the, with the IP. Um, I find that to be a, a bit of a sad industry and I, I wouldn't want to be in it myself, but uh, I, I fully understand his like, desire to talk about it because of course it's exciting and then also just you know want to protect it so that you know it, it doesn't get harmed or or stolen or copied uh, before he's capable of securing it that's an interesting point and, and it's one that we haven't spoken about i think in any other episode or at all before but it, you know this is this is to some degree the nature of these these sort of changes and innovation points that you see as markets start to emerge but you know, for, for folks listening in who mightn't be necessarily overly familiar, you know, like how big a risk is this and how, how big of a disruptor could, could, this, could this be in terms of either creating some kind of lethargy in deployment or, or kind of, you know, causes you to have to be a bit more cautious than you would probably optimally like to be? Well, I certainly think it's, a, it's more of a risk in the equipment uh, areas, obviously, because that that type of IP could be completely just just completely separate uh, the company from the rest, right? So some of these new forms of electrolyzers that are are very different from PEM or um, alkaline or their maybe they're still PEM but they're a real spin <laughs> to the side. I think that that for them it is a big concern because. Um, Plenty of companies have a lot of money and uh, they don't want to do the, they, they want to get involved and maybe they haven't been involved quickly enough. And, and so it would look good to them to, to just, you know, take a type of technology. And if it's not protected, then they can. I mean, I, I think most of the large companies, I don't really do this as a, it's not, you, you don't see this happening so often with, you know, big manufacturers, but it, it is more like they have organizations that are patent trolls and then are just looking around for what's going on and then they will try to sell it to anyone. And then that's just something to look out for. For, for companies like us, 
obviously we could have kept uh, our rationale for why we picked our sites to ourselves. And, and maybe that would have uh, kept fewer people from going after the same um, countries. But at the end of the day, we felt that it was better to have more ammonia produced because the market is so big that we actually welcome people producing it. We just don't want them to actually try to steal our our very own land. <laughs> that, that is our one ask. What we learn, you know, we, we don't feel we would like to share it with the, the market to the extent that uh, it can't be used back against us, that someone would say that they had thought of it first and, you know, would try to, to charge us for it. Because that's that's the real concern for most companies. It's not that they want to make money off of the IP. They, they do in terms of the equipment, but they're not going to sell it. it it's, it's more that they don't want it thrown back at them, that somebody will claim that they thought of it first and they patented and then they'll have to pay a fee for it, um, which is, you know, it's obviously a very not, not a real clean place to play in a, any kind of market. I, I feel for the inventor in that case, of course. Well, with that, I think I think we can probably call it there. It's it's been a pretty pretty interesting and deep interview around this, and I think we look forward to getting Rafi back on to hear about these Easter eggs when he's finally able to to share it with us. Absolutely, he's definitely got our interest peaked. And that does it for us here today at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge EAH thank you to Rafi Garabedian, CEO and co-founder of Electric Hydrogen, for speaking with us on the show today. And thank you, as always, to Alicia and Patrick for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And as you know, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests and would like to get in touch with us, please send us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. Lastly, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Till then, all the best from the team here at Everything About Hydrogen. Hydrogen.